it's a combat sport, right? So you know we don't want to take the wild out of the stallion. At the end of the day, you, you've got to be you, you've got to be wired a particular way to be a fighter. What we don't want to do is suppress that, but we can train the stallion and we can shape the stallion. And I think that's what we're about. We really believe that improvements in training methodology, training strategy, recovery mechanisms, nutrition um, and dietetics, you know, uh, injury prevention mechanisms. That's that's what how we're looking at it is how can we change the narrative? How can we change the nomenclature and the language that people are using within our sport to just elevate the whole thing and, and um, you know, help help support all the fighters um, to continue to progress and, 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 and support their development. Hello there, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, the world of high performance is a strange old sphere. For example, we have hopes and ambitions Yet when you aspire too much, it just feels unstable and nervy. We need to be tenacious at times and resilient, but we inherently crave a comfort zone or mastery over our field. And it's these sorts of tensions that I hope to explore by speaking to people who have experience of how that feels, people who have been in the trenches with performers, or those that have gotten up into the helicopter and and taken a broader look at the what's, the how's and the why we and other people aspire to new levels. If you'd like to support the podcast and can take two minutes of your valuable time to open up iTunes or your podcasting app and leave a review, then that would be really cool for us and will bring a smile to our efforts to bring you some interesting content. Now, I talk about tensions. Well, this week we get into an interesting discussion with my guest and good friend, Duncan French, about just that. So Duncan is the Vice President of Performance at the Ultimate Fighting Championships. So mixed martial arts is a sport that has had a really accelerated rise into the public consciousness over the last couple of decades. And it it seems to have captured the imagination, created real interest in, I think, as much as anything, because of the unpredictability of the contests. And so has followed a professionalisation of the bouts, the events and the support that they receive. And Duncan's focus is to provide the very best support to the fighters sometimes supporting two fighters, for example, that are about to fight each other. Now, we get into an interesting discussion about the ethics of aiming to help somebody do a better job of hurting somebody else to the point of submission or unconsciousness versus an unhealthy neglect that would result if fighters were left to their own devices. You see, combat has been with us since the dawn of time, way before we were human. And it was probably one of the earliest activities that we'd call sport. And let's be realistic, it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. Now, Duncan is a world-renowned conditioning coach, rightly respected and sought after for his incredible experience and his superb insights into the world of performance. And as I fully expected from Duncan, He sheds light on this territory of mixed martial arts with lucidity, acumen and wisdom. Now, even if you're not an MMA fan, which I'm not actually, but I'm really interested, then my expectations are that you'll take a great deal from Duncan's ideas. And on that note, let's get into the interview. Duncan French, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Good to be reconnected. It's been a while. It has been. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Life is uh, life is going great, and uh, yeah, enjoying what we're doing. It's going it's going good. You've got you've got a young baby just joined the house. How's it all going? Ah, it's hectic. <laughs> I mean, you know, but um, juggling things, it's, uh, it, it, it's great fun. She's uh, a little girl now, Frankie, um, and she joins my two and a half year old son, um, Alfie. So uh, yeah, full house and more chaos to the, uh, to the equation. Frankie French. I love the alliteration. Frankie French, that. pop star, pop star name, right? That is amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh and how do you survive? Are you, how, how do you under sleep deprivation conditions? What what happens to, to actually? Dunk? She's she's been really really good. Oh, um, I hate she wakes, you. Yeah, she wakes up maybe once a night around two a.m. three a.m. and then she'll sleep through to like five thirty. So so far, touch wood, we're doing good. 
you love her even more now. <laughs> yeah, she's the best. <laughs> so I'd love to get into your insights, uh, that background in conditioning over the years that you've had, and particularly around this area of combat that you've worked mm. in such depth. But but equally, your philosophies that I'd love to scratch into those and and have that conversation with you. I know we've had many conversations over the years, but um, can you just kick us off by telling us a bit about your early years, your early early background, how you kind of got into supporting athletes over the years? What's your what's your background, Dunk? Yeah, I mean, like everyone that that works in sport, and you know, I've, I've been blessed, and you know, from the outset, I'll say, you know, I've had a, I've had an amazing career to date, and I've loved every moment of it, and um, I never take it for granted, and um, yeah, it's it, it's provided me with some some really great life experiences and opportunities, but um, like everyone, I, you know, I was a, a competitive sportsman, soccer player, rugby player, you name it, I tried everything, um, and I got to a point where you know. I, I, I wasn't going to be the professional, but I still had that hunger to be around competition and to succeed. So, um, that dropped me into, you know, pursuing a degree in sports science like most. Um, and, you know, the shortcuts in that process, I, I did a master's in, in sports science, um, back in the UK you know, BSc and then, and then MSc. Um, I worked as a PE teacher for a year and thought, this is just not for me. You know, I enjoy working with the kids, but um, I wanted to work at the, the cutting edge of things. So I actually pursued a PhD out here in America, um, just cold calling, sending out emails and seeing what, what I could uh, what could stick. And uh, I got lucky, you know, and um, I, I managed to come out here to the US back in 2000 um, to pursue a PhD in exercise physiology and bioenergetics, um, which was a, an amazing experience, four years of my life, which um, really kind of shaped my philosophies, my thoughts, my my work ethic, you know, just how I go about life on a day-to-day basis. It was it was a fascinating experience. And um, yeah, that was, that was fantastic. I was with uh, Dr. William Kramer was my um, uh, premier kind of supervisor. So um we were largely into a, a lot of endocrine kind of research and, and resistance training and, and, and force and power, um, but also got to dabble with a, a ton of different things from, you know, compression garments to concurrent training to topical ointments for pain relief to you name it, everything. Um, and, and it was a really great experience to to be able to have so many um skills and and be exposed to so many different things and it's something i still hold dear today is uh you know i've tried not to focus just on one thing but to have many kind of weapons and tools that you can call upon as a job or an opportunity requires you to flex your style and flex your skills so it's certainly a a mantra that i i maintain with me today so you're an enthusiastic sports person but perhaps not quite good enough to make the grade so that's standard Nearly, but not good enough. Uh, yeah. By the sounds of it, um, I mean, I was, and, and, I, was the, I was the captain of the uh, you know the Great Britain American football team for my sins for fourteen years, and I, I represented um, Great Britain at the highest level in oh, wow. in um, European kind of American football, and uh, that that was good. But uh, yeah, I never made a, a professional kind of. Um, although I was a schoolboy, like in, in soccer clubs, signed on with a, a few clubs, never made the grade. Okay. And you went, you cold called Bill Kramer. How did that yeah. <laughs> And Roger and Oka and, and others. <laughs> okay. So you hassled the top brass and uh, so, and how did that conversation go? How, what, what clicked? What meant that Bill was able to say, yeah, you know what, we'll give this guy a go. It's really funny because this is another great story that I always tell people. Um, you know, I tried maybe four or five times. Um, and, and each time he pushed me back, he said, you know, we've got no, no, um, scholarships, got no stipends. Um, I'm not recruiting this moment in time. And I was just probably young and belligerent and a bit naive. And, and as I, you know, kept, kept pushing, the more I, I read his background and his research activities, it was something that really attracted me. Um, and in the end, I kind of, you know, buckled him into uh, submission, I guess. <laughs> and he said, you know, we, we can get you out here for a year and can probably fund you for a year. Um, but it, you, you're taking a risk and um, your parents or yourselves, you're going to have to figure out financials beyond that because I can't guarantee it. So spoke to my parents and, and they said, listen, we, we, we can, you know, commit to trying to help you through the process. And we all kept our fingers crossed. And, um, you know, we off I went and I, and I took the jump and um, made the commitment to come out with, with no hard or fast long-term 
commitment, but certainly for the first 12 months. I remember vividly getting um, getting onto campus. It was at Ball State University initially. Um, in Indiana, um, which is a pretty well, well renowned, um, sports science lab where Dave Costell, Bill Fink and others, mm. um, Scott Trappy and others were at the time. Um, I walked into my first staff meeting, um, or, 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 you know, research group meeting with Dr. Kramer where all the other graduate students were there. And I was just kind of sat on the end as a new kid. I'd just been in town for three days, traveled, you know, 5,000 miles from the UK and he went through every single student. Um, and kind of gave them their roles and responsibilities for their first, for the, for the next kind of six months of the year. And he got to me at the end and he went, Duncan, I don't even know why you're here. I must have had a moment of weakness. Just do what Mickey tells you to do. And at that moment, it was kind of like, Oh, holy crap. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no hard or fast things going on here. And it was kind of like a great equalizer. Um, had to prove myself, right? Had to knuckle down and, and, and provide deliverables and show, uh, show evidence that I should be there. And, you know, the rest is history. And, and I managed to get a full ride scholarship for the whole four years and my PhD. Wow. So it was, it was quite a public statement of, we're not sure why you're here. Uh, you're going to need to kind of create this and put some energy behind it yourself. Is that what it felt like? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it just, it checked my step massively in terms of it's like holy cow this 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 guy's not messing around so and listen it was an american american style versus versus a british style of of messaging let's say and um <laughs> that that was also an educational piece but yeah it absolutely as you say it, it was like right okay i'm going to have to demonstrate my value and my worth and um you know that's something i hold dear to today it doesn't matter who you are or what your credentials or your experiences are there's still an expectation in in sports performance that you have to demonstrate um you know results um and, and success so i'm i'm hearing that sense of appetite encouraged by that moment not necessarily just the oh i'm i'm doing i'm doing further study with bill kramer i've made it uh, which a lot of people fall into that trap of thinking by association that that they've made it because they're employed with a certain club or or managed by a certain somebody. But ultimately, that sounded like rocket fuel for pushing you on. Yeah, I think, you know, you, everyone's different, but human nature, you're going to respond to that type of um, challenge, that shot across the bow in, in one way or another, right? It's either going to be motivational and spur you on and be, you know, provides, you know, adaptive competition or it's going to destroy you and, and, and it'll be maladaptive competition and it's going to be too stressful and, and you're going to buckle under the, um, under the challenge. So listen, at that time, I, 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 t- I took it on and ran with it. And I think, um, yeah, it was a, it was a huge fire in my belly that said, yeah, this is for me. I want this challenge. I'm, this is competition. You know, whilst it was in a academic and scientific environment at that time as a, as a PhD student, it was competition. Someone's challenged me and, and now I've got to demonstrate my ability to execute and, and, and um, provide success. So yeah, that was, that was really interesting. And I think coupled with my, my personal character, I'm, you know, at times I can be quite self deprivating and, um, you know, put myself down and I'm certainly not one of these ones who rests on my laurels and said, Hey, listen, I've, I've been at Newcastle United. I've been to, you know, supported three Olympic games. I've worked with national teams in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I still always think that, you know, I've, I've got to demonstrate the, the Duncan French brand and product and, and hopefully people see value in it. And, and my employers and organizations I've worked for continue to, to pursue my services, let's say. Hmm. And so what can, can you put me, a, uh, give me a date when that was taking place? When did you start your doctoral studies out there? 2000. At yeah, 2000. And so when did you identify then as a physiologist or as a conditioning coach? Because conditioning didn't really, it wasn't certainly established then. I mean, there was certainly mm. roots down, but, um, as much as anything, Bill Kramer's background and understanding the, the physiological responses of conditioning training and resistance work so what was your identity then yeah absolutely sports scientist exercise physiologist um and i think you know i i i'd gone through my degree and i didn't necessarily resonate at that moment in time with you know aerobic physiology and douglas bags and vo2 max testing it just because it just wasn't my bag at that moment in time Um, excuse the pun 
Yep, there you go. Um, <laughs> I I really got into the the force expression, the power expression, speed. Um, you know th- those types of high explosive, high energetics. But so that's why Kramer's work really attracted me. But absolutely, I, I came out to the states with an interest as a sports scientist and an exercise physiologist, and that's what I identified as. The, the, the conditioning piece really grew. Um, so after my first year at, at Ball State, I actually transferred with Dr. Kramer because he got a new job at the University of Connecticut. So after 12 months in Indiana, I moved across to Connecticut with um, six of my um, colleagues in the in the research team. And um, that's where I really started to get into um, the, the the importance and the role of, of, of strength and conditioning and, and um, you know, conditioning coaching as I embedding myself into the athletics department of a very successful um, university basketball program here in uh, in Connecticut so yeah it was it was definitely an evolution into the the role of, of conditioning and, and becoming more of a coach as well and then when you returned to the UK what was the what was the decision was it still fishing about as to whether conditioning is a route for you to work work in? Or were you still almost a hybrid of of the different disciplines? Yeah, I, I was a hybrid, and I, and to this day, I consider myself a hybrid. I think you know, coming back to something I've already touched on a little bit, I'm a huge believer in you can't compartmentalize your skills. You can't compartmentalize yourself. If you're going to progress in a career and continue to grow, you can't be seen as one thing. It's it's just a too it's too competitive in in the industry now. So I've always um, you know, pursued the academic side, book chapters, put you know, scientific manuscripts, lecturing, um, teaching at university. I was, I was obviously affiliated with the University of Northumbria for a little while there, and um, but at the same time, my hunger for coaching really grew as well, and I started to you know tip the balance of the scales a little bit towards being a coach who can do science rather than a scientist who can do a little bit of coaching. Um, and that's why I dropped into more of a coaching role when I came back to the UK and eventually established myself in the English Institute, working with the, the you know, the national programs and NGBs there. So it, it, it still comes back to me. Uh, it's really key that I feel like I can sit in different domains, wear many hats and, you know, humbly looking back i think that's been a massive attribute that people have been attracted to to me as a professional because it can talk on a on a scientific level i can talk hard basic science you know demonstrate my ability to execute on research projects and initiatives but at the same time i can be at the coal face on the floor and 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 really engage athletes and colleagues and um, and drive physical development initiatives forward with with proven results it feels in some ways a similar alignment to my approach in that I've I've got quite a broad publication record, for example. It's not the mm-hmm. it's not the strongest publication record, but all of them have got a sense of performance attached to them. They've all got a sense of uh, need. So I'm researching this at some level of depth and consistency at that depth simply to try and create a better answer for the coach and ultimately if it's publication grade material then then there's a depth there but it's ultimately to try and great, create those better answers for the coach and the athlete yeah absolutely and um as, as i've already kind of said that, that my phd gave me opportunity to think like that at many different levels not just relating to high performance sport but also you know, I, I remember vividly, and I'm going off track here, but we did a research study with um, looking at osteoarthritis and a topical cream p- for pain relief in osteoarthritis. Nothing to do with performance sport, but this was a research project that we and a grant that we got, and we found this population uh, in a, a nunnery in Connecticut, right? So <laughs> that had a high propensity of of nuns with arthritic wrists because that's where we were were doing the research so for about six months I was a research lead um, inviting these 60 70 80 year old nuns to come to a high performance lab and we were rubbing topical cream onto them but it sounds so surreal and it was at the time because they're all wearing their habits and um, you know their head gowns but then you know these pristine white athletic shorts um, 
and we were doing, you know, sit to stand tests with 70 year old nuns. Um, but I just thought that that even that type of experience I hold dear because again, it's about engaging people. It's about understanding how you connect with people to, to get to an end point that you so desire. And that then fills in the performance piece that, that you touched on there that the, the, the diversity of your experiences is always related to optimization and performance in one way shape or another and and, and that's uh, that's been really an interesting kind of thing that I've I've always considered on, through the process do you know why they had specific high prevalence rates of uh, no, joint no, pain we we never actually understood that but when we were kind of out in the community trying to recruit very specific um population um it just happened that this uh, this nunnery had uh, you know, had lots of, uh, I, I want to say maybe 60% of the, uh, the the subjects came from this one nunnery. <laughs> I, I just I want to know why now. That's, that's, yeah. we'll have to set that back up um, and see why. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I, I totally agree with that. That I think there's a lot of people that can get a little bit um, elitist, a little bit too precious about the, the level of, uh, athletes or coaches that you've worked with that has to be at a certain level uh, of international or premier league or whatever it might be but ultimately you're dealing with humans aren't you you're working with humans and trying to make a difference to them whether in my background it's a post-cardiac rehabilitation class that I used to run when I just graduated but I hold that so dearly as as an experience because you can make a real difference to someone's quality of life Regardless of whether they're gunning for an Olympic medal or not, you can make a difference. Yeah, and 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 you're absolutely right. I, I always say we're in a people industry. We're not in a sports industry. Um, and and I say that flippantly because obviously I, I work in an environment. I have worked in an environment where it's about winning gold medals. It's about breaking world records. It's about winning national or world championships. Um, but you do that by maximizing the potential of your relationships with others. Um, and, and people and personality and characteristics is at, is at the, the crux of everything. And I think the good people do that well. And when you realize it's about affecting people, you can somewhat step away from the limelight and, um, you know, just understand that if I'm supporting someone else's growth as a, as a servant, you know, as a servant leader, um, be it as a coach or as a scientist, it's, it's hugely rewarding. And I think, you know, in the modern day with, with social media and, um, the, the desire for expedited success and recognition, we, we, we're currently in a pretty, I, I see we're, we're in a, we're in an interesting environment right now when it comes to the dissemination of information and how people capture and acknowledge what is good, solid, um, valid and correct information. But what is quick digestible information? And that, that, that's a, another conversation altogether, but it goes hand in hand with what are your personal motivations? What do we get reward from? And, and where are you actually moving the needle on someone's life? You know? Okay. So I'm, I'm hearing by implication, correct me if I've got this wrong, that ultimately there's quite a lot of noise where people are just re cutting and pasting publication titles for example pushing a lot of material out look at this look at this as opposed to a quality control and this this material can have a real impact on your practice but also on someone's life is that what i'm hearing just the noise versus the quality yeah i mean i think filtering filtering noise in this day and age is 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 absolutely the key to, to where you need to go um, and it's time consuming and it can take effort but it's that there's so much um, yeah there's so much noise out there as you say as you rightly point out with people pushing content out um, people becoming you know celebrities through social media and listen I'm not knocking that I'm, I'm just and, and, and people make um, good careers and good livings from it um, but pe- I, I also see you know practitioners doing it in a really effective way and with the right motives and also I see other people which I'd kind of turn away from and say that that's a that's a that's a celebrity pursuing kind of gratification global affirmation um strategy and desire which is just not me and my approach and i don't really resonate with that mm. yeah i can i can feel that pressure for a lot of pra- young practitioners mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the norm is to be 
noisier or to mm-hmm. create a presence as opposed to creating a track record of working with people Correct. and supporting people. That's That comes first, of which ultimately that's the best marketing without sounding too crass, yeah. that if you're creating a good reputation for yourself, people will talk about it for you as opposed to uh, getting throwing into the wash of social media. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and again, I know that you and I, uh, you know, having read, read your book and your experiences and, and been around and worked with you directly, Steve, I know that, you know, we're perfectly aligned in kind of our philosophies there is, you know, I, I try to let my work speak for myself or those that I work with, um, endorse my work. And, you know, I think that that's, uh, the, the biggest kind of affirmation you can get and the most, um, valid, let's say. What, what are the changes that you've seen for strength conditioning over the years from those early formative years as to, we don't even know what this is and we're trying to introduce it as a discipline in the U in the UK, yeah. fairly well established in U S collegiate systems, Australian systems, but, but it's, it's evolved quite a bit over the years. What are your observations? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's cha- it, it, it changes and evolves massively. It's, it, it's exciting. You know, I love that evolution. I love what the profession of strength and conditioning has, has, has become and continues to grow into. Um, I think, you know, when I look at it, that, that just what we know um, and how we've brought other sciences, other technologies, other information into what has historically just been a very uh, dictatorial um, coach, you know, coaches king, coach will tell you what to do kind of approach um, to just having more efficacy for methodologies and, and chasing adaptation. You know, that, that's, that's re- I've seen, you know, that, that's massively impacted the, the strength and conditioning job and, and the, the industry as a whole. Um, just because we know more and, and therefore there's more insight, there's more tools, there's more opportunity, there's more direct approaches, there's more effective approaches. Um, and that's before you even bolt on the influence of technology and data and how the, you know, how that's changing, changing the world. I think one of the, one of the interesting things that I've had the, the pleasure of being able to do is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from the UK. I've coached in the UK. I've, you know, I speak on the, the global circuits. So, I've, you know, been to Australia and throughout Europe and Canada. And then obviously now I'm in North America and, and, and the US where, as you rightly say, there's been a, a very rich heritage of, of coaching, um, in the US. And when I look at performance, and understand, and, and I try and put the building blocks together while I'm trying to develop my team and my staff and understanding how I'm maximizing their potential. I think America has been built on um, strong military presence and strong physical education models. Um, and therefore, the, also their sports are tend to be large numbers. So, you know, if you look at an American football team, that's 50, 60, 70. When I was at the University of Notre Dame, we had 105 kids on our American football team. So that no longer really becomes about performance. That's, an, that's a logistics sport. It's about how do I get 105 kids through a workout um, in an effective process. So America has has had to develop coaching strategies that largely are, and again, this is me tongue in cheek, but they're largely driven by authority and management of logistics by the nature of the team sports that are here in North America. If we look at the UK, Australia, some of these other sports, number one, we, we don't have the talent pool, which is the same. And coaching um, has been very different because our team sports are not as large. So the authoritarian piece, I don't think, has always been there. Um, and it's not built on a military initiative historically as well. So science and physiology has largely been what's shaped developing and growing a smaller talent pool where we have to look after the talent and, and, and push the small amount of talent to the top. So we've got performance in the middle and I feel like North America and the U S is coming largely from this coaching domain and Europe and Australia is coming from this science domain. And the two have got to performance in very different directions. Um, neither is right or wrong. Obviously you need a blend of both, but in my, in my role right now, I'm definitely seeing kind of in North America where the pendulum has swung away from coaching to science and sports science and technology, and then it's actually been 
you know, rejected somewhat and not received too well. And it's starting to swing back a little bit to coaching and the role of, you know, the soft skills and all this type of stuff. So this, this pendulum is con- constantly swinging. But the point I'm trying to make is when I look at my career and the opportunities I've had to learn and see how people are maximized and you look at sports performance potential, um, that the two different continents have come at it very differently, which has been fascinating to see. So what I'm not hearing there is the the individualized, idealized, one-to-one depth of work necessarily that you you might expect in say more individual Olympic-based sports in in the UK system and in Australia versus the crowd control for team-based sports where you've got for high levels of of organisation you need to keep it fresh and varied on a regular basis. What I'm hearing there is is the, the tendency to coach from a classic stopwatch clipboard um, planning point of view, as opposed to the the tenor of the, the sessions is driven by a numeric objective uh, principles first and foremost. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to. You know, I'm not trying to call anybody out and my, my colleagues here in America, but yeah, that's absolutely the way I see it. Um, historically, how it's evolved. Um, and listen, there's, there's people doing some great work now here in, in North America and are really trying to build objectivity and science into their systems and their, their programs. But I think if you just look at it as a whole, yes, um, that, that, that it's, it's about, it's, I see it historically, it's been about, um, you know, directing large groups and large numbers. And that has historically come by from the nature of the sports that you see here in the US um, versus a very scientific approach um, that has not necessarily always been driven by coach interaction, but more data and objectivity um, to understand regression and progression from a UK or an Australian kind of scientific approach. Um, and again, like I said at the, the head of that, that you, you still got to have a blend of both of these things. But I think the maturity of professional sports and professional organizations on both sides of the pond um, still are not where they need to be in terms of their acceptance of uh, data, objectivity, management, the integration of science and technology, or the ability to have a subjective feel and drive, um, you know, coaching philosophy and coaching eye. Um, so I think it's it's been a really insightful process for me, and I, you know, at some point I'll I'll write a, a white paper on it and um, you know put it out there for the for the community to try and challenge and consider. But um, yeah, it's certainly been an interesting observation, and that's the way I see it right now. Yeah, that's an interesting one in the sense that a lot of clubs, professional clubs, investing in analysts left, right, and centre, generating an awful lot of data, and some scepticism following on from that, primarily because the utility of it is relatively low. Right, it, it's it, it's feeling as though we've got to do this to to match, keep up with the Joneses, keep up with everyone else, but they're not actually getting a, a serious handle on it. And that's not going to create a good reputation for applied sports science if people are generating numbers, but not necessarily the performance impact. Yeah. And, and again, you, we can't get away from the fact that the collegiate system here in North America is so powerful in generating talent. It is the talent pathway for pretty much every single national governing body um, in North America and also into pro leagues like the NFL or the NBA. So keeping up with the Joneses from a recruitment perspective, obviously these big schools want the best talent. So they need to have things that attract um, talent and, and what differentiates yourself. Well, obviously winning and losing differentiates yourself, but it's also in this day and age, the peripherals, what kids are looking for um, from, from a recruitment perspective. So shiny toys, bells and whistles are always great in recruitment. We don't have that same system in Europe or Australia where it's it's a, a collegiate recruitment pathway. Our talent pathway starts at, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old and, and um, you know, the clubs are putting people through academies. It's a different system. Um, so that, that also is impactful, as you say, on people's desire to use data to drive um, a numeric understanding of progression or regression rather than, shiny toys that might just bring people through the door. Mm. Interesting. So um, let's step back and then t- tell me a little bit about 
your current work, but I know you've got a background, certainly from our interactions in the UK around combat-based sports with Taekwondo. I'm not, I don't know whether that's a, a specific link that you pursued um, with the UFC mixed martial arts area, but be, I'd love you to tell me a bit about what you're currently working with and faced with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, what it, one of the first, when I was uh, with the English Institute of Sporting Gateshead in the Northeast, um, one of the first sports I worked with was GB Boxing, um, and I was essentially leading kind of the, there was a, a strong Northeast, Newcastle, Sunderland, you know, Tony Jeffries, uh, Bradley Saunders, some of these guys um, that were heading out to Beijing. Um, and I and I kind of jumped into the boxing world when I first started with the English Institute. Um, as I progressed, kind of what moved forwards, um, a number of, of cycles to Rio. And, you know, I, I then became the head strength coach for the, the GB Taekwondo team as another combat sport. I think, you know, the last time I counted, I've, I've had exposure or worked with 33 different pro or Olympic sports. So as we all have the pleasure of in, in these institutes, you get exposed to a lot of different sports. I always resonated to combat sports. Um, I'm not a combat athlete myself, although I'm doing a little bit now um, in terms of just understanding and um, what our guys have to go through. But um it, it 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 was more the the blue chip the the blue collar attitude the warrior spirit the desire to you know if, if if you're a combat athlete you they tend to understand the value of the physicality piece and as a strength and conditioning coach you know that's all you want is someone that that knows um or, or really values the importance of, of of training and physical development and improving your respective capacities um, so I, I, I kind of developed a, a, an interest and a desire to, to, to have, you know, to work with combat sports. It wasn't that that's what I set out to do. And as I went through my career and, and then moved back here to the US and I was working at the University of Notre Dame with multiple different types of sports. Um, yeah, the UFC kind of came calling as, as they were setting up this new program and developing um, this new initiative through the UFC. And, you know, the, it was, it wasn't an immediate, oh yeah, that's what I need to go and do. Um, but the more I looked at it, the more I understood, um, what they were trying to do here in terms of, you know, building world-class facilities for evolving combat sports, um, and, and really changing the trajectory of, of combat training, um, to, to do it in a sport that is very young, um, and doesn't have a lot of literature and data and research. So, you know, lots of upsides in terms of being able to find new insights, um, and, 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 you know, that those types of things really interested me. So I jumped over to the UFC and now I'm the, the vice president of performance for the UFC Performance Institute. Um, we basically provide services, support services to around 600 fighters globally based around the world. So we're a decentralized system. Um, so we do remote work and we do in-house work. We have facilities in Shanghai, China and, and Las Vegas is our headquarters, but we're expanding potentially into Central America and, and, and who knows from, from where on there. Um, but yeah, on a day-to-day basis, it's it's about trying to support um, the service provision and the portfolio of services that world-class MMA fighters need. Um, and I always say we've got three kind of responsibilities here. We we deliver services face-to-face or remotely to our fighters and our roster, but we have to um, collect data, collect information, do research, do project work, so we increase our insights around what is world-class you know, UFC, MMA. And then off the back of that, the third thing is to then start disseminating and pushing information and content out to slowly um, change the standards of, of combat sports training and, and, and competition there in the future. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm loving it. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's, it's a great, interesting, uh, you know, group of athletes to work with and, and certainly presents lots of challenges. So you, you said something there that was, interesting if I can pick up on it about changing the trajectory of a young sport Mm. so can does that mean can I hear in that sentence that the benefit of not necessarily having a tradition where you've got this fusion of different approaches in a style of fighting that is so open that it doesn't necessarily mean that it it is held back by well we've always done it this way for the last 
200 years, 300 years, whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, the, I've never worked with a sport that's got so many degrees of freedom um, associated with it. And by that, I mean, we have 11 different weight classes. We have males, we have females. The the statistics of the way a heavyweight fight is won is completely different to the way a flyweight fight is won. Um, you know, you've got different stylistic backgrounds from Muay Thai, wrestling, um, you know, karate, kickboxing, you name it. It's There's so many variables that come into this sport that, that really means people can be creative in the way they try and find success, you know, tall, short, large, thin. Um, th- there's so many different things. I always liken it, and I don't know, you know, how, your knowledge of kind of ice hockey and the NHL, but historically I always liken it to kind of NHL hockey in as much as back in the day they used you know the, each team always used to have to have an enforcer on the team right the guy that would do the fight as you start the fights try and disrupt the opponent's best player etc and you just have this guy in the middle of the the, the the rink who would be the um the enforcer and every team had one of those guys well somebody at some point figured out if we recruit a ton of short fast skaters we'll we'll be able to skate around this guy and hockey moved from being a kind of physical sport to a very fast sport and now you don't see the same kind of approach to the play that sport evolved someone figured out how to do it better and i think when i look at um when when all the staff here look at MMA and particularly you know the UFC our promotion here you know, it's only been 25 years as a professional sport. There's so many things that we need to learn about this sport that can continue to make it evolve and grow. And those degrees of freedom that I talk about mean that it's got a platform where we can absolutely do that. Fighters are going to be able to figure out what maximizes their potential, their skill set, their style um, versus the next person. So it's, it's an exciting time for sure. I love that analogy in terms of the evolution, and it sounds as though you you almost need to be gearing up and readying for change, creativity, innovation on a day to day basis, so that you're you're staying ahead of the curve and, and staying curious and thinking how could we figure this out, as opposed to we're we're trying to lay down the foundations of this is the way it's done. Yeah, and and, and remember, it's it's a combat sport, right? So you know we don't want to take the wild out of the stallion. At the end of the day, you, you've got to be <laughs> you've got to be wired a particular way to be a fighter. Um, what we don't want to do is suppress that, but we can train the stallion and we can shape the stallion. And I think that's what we're about, and that's that's what you've touched on there is. Um, we, we really believe that improvements in training methodology, training strategy, recovery mechanisms, nutrition, um, and dietetics, you know, uh, injury prevention mechanisms. Let's be honest, combat sports have not had large amounts of funding and, and, and financial reward associated with them. Now they do, you know, we're talking about world-class athletes that can earn a lot of money. So, um, that's that's what how we're looking at it is how can we change the narrative how can we change the nomenclature and the language that people are using within our sport to just elevate the whole thing and and um you know help help support all the fighters um to continue to progress and and and, and support their development and so how do you approach that challenge then if you're trying to aspire to understand what world class looks like but there is so many different approaches to success and and winning what's your approach to the data but also the nuance of the and the flair behind it yeah that that's a really great question and that that's obviously what i entertain myself with now on a daily basis um <laughs> it, it 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 comes back to dropping the ego and if we create a system and it's the the ufc system now, the UFC Performance Institute system, we're going to do a disservice to some people who, who that system doesn't necessarily reflect their their motivations, their ambitions, or their their desire to approach it a particular way. So we're very we're very um, custom and bespoke in our approach, and huge believers in the cross we bear is that we have to approach this on an individual basis. You know, it, it has to be looked upon as how do you maximize the potential of a unique um, physiological organism with their respective training history and background, their respective goals and desires and the skill sets that they're trying to, mac- to maximize. Uh, we always talk about, you know, you're trying to increase your strengths and make your strengths super strengths. or are we trying to lift the low hanging fruit and raise your limitations? Cause it's, 
truly the decathlon of combat sports, right? So you're only ever as good as your lowest event, let's say. So if I'm a kickboxer and the, the fight goes to the mat and it's on the floor and now you're getting wrestling and you're not a very good wrestler, that's, that's going to be the lowest common denominator. So certain points you've got to try and elevate you know the low-hanging fruit but the there is something that got you to this level which is your x factor and we have to maximize that potential so we're always playing around with that kind of narrative of what is it we're trying to do but we look at data and objectivity on an individual level all of our programming and our strategy is about being intentional um to what the physiology, the motor skill acquisition and the psychology and emotional social factors of each fighter that we work with um, needs. So that is about dropping the system. There isn't a system here. Our system flexes to maximize the potential of whoever walks through the door. And again, when you look at um, some professional organizations and you go to University X or you know Pro Team X and it's it, it, you're going to work into our system, well, you can deliver the same workout for 20 people and you're getting 20 different responses to the same workout. So it, it's it's not, it's a bit of an asinine way of looking at it philosophically. So, you know, that comes back to this athlete-centered model, which was ingrained into me a little bit, the EIS and um, through the, the GB sporting system. But it's certainly something within the sport of mixed martial arts. I think we have to go down that approach. Must be enormously varied for you and challenging in equal measure of, of thinking. Well, this is a new case; we haven't seen this one before, but but let's figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, every everything starts with an assessment and a diagnostic, and you know, I'm not I'm not saying that at nauseum, um, but we have to capture some insight to then decide. All right, we're going to reverse engineer competition. We're going to look at modeling what 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 it takes to win for one of a better term and then we reverse engineer that and see where you what the gap analysis is to where you're at right now and your stylistic approach um and and as you've touched on there the variety that we see um is really actually super exciting for the staff and the team here that we've recruited because it means you can be a creative thinker it means you can go out there and solve problems and figure out the the, the right approach for for athlete a versus athlete b it's it's not the same way you know, fits everything. If if you look at a a scrum half in 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 world rugby, the scrum half looks pretty much the same across the board, and their skill set is very much the same. But if you look at a, a, a you know a middleweight fighter in our our roster, they're coming with different ways of winning the fight. Different ways are going to defend losing the fight. They're going to be tall, short, long, thin. You know, it's it's so varied, um, and that's the exciting thing about the challenge and why. We talk about evolution and accelerating that evolution of how are people looking at maximizing performance potential in what, at the end of the day, is a fight. Um, but the technicality of what these guys can do in this day and age is is hugely impressive. And the diversity of the respective skills is what is is really kind of challenging. So excuse my ignorance, Dunk, but um, do you would you support people two sides of the ring would you be um helping one person and another person at the same time um maximizing hopefully trying to maximize the chances of them of the the winning but equal measure yeah so we're we're kind of agnostic to the whole roster right so we we work with you know anyone on that on that roster of 600 um that they're all in their own respective teams around the world but we're not a team here at the performance institute we're we're a service that can support um, you know, the red corner and the blue corner at the same time. Um, so it's for us, it's really about maximizing everything up till the octagon door closes. Um, the two guys then obviously go about what they need to do. We step away at that point. We're impartial, for want of a better term. And then when the door opens again and they need that recovery and re- regeneration and, and rehabilitation, then we, we engage in the process again. So it's actually quite a unique um, mindset as a performance professional because again i've always worked with pro teams or athletes and i'm i'm striving to pursue gold and 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 at the you know the 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 betterment of anybody else um we're still trying to do that here we're still trying to support people winning world titles but as you say we can be working with both guys at the same time that that are fighting each other on saturday night it's quite a unique um, perspective and do you have any challenges with that absolutely 
confidentiality yeah, I'm, I'm, point of view, but but equally somebody maybe not letting their the full barrier down and trusting you guys because you're helping uh, their opponent. Yeah, I mean you've nailed it. At the end of the day, um, competitive advantage is everything, right? And when we're collecting data and information um, around injury, health, physical performance, weight management for for a weight making sport. All of that stuff is is very sensitive information. Um, and listen, it's it's taken us, and we continue to do so, but it's taken us a while um, to gain the trust and the, the support and the openness of the fighters. But, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see that engagement a lot more now that, you know, they understand what the Performance Institute does, how we go about our business, how we are agnostic, but also privacy and HIPAA and data compliance and, and data security is absolutely fundamental to, to what these guys are, are trying to to you know avoid sharing so um we have to be hugely sensitive to that and tell me a little bit about some of the ethical challenges that you face with there and, and my gross summary of this is ultimately you're trying to help somebody beat somebody else up yeah. and the, the bigger, better, strong, or the stronger, or the more capable of fighting at a higher level ultimately could cause ha- harm and damage to somebody else. So how do you manage that? And what's the philosophies that guide you? Yeah, I mean, you, you're right. It, it, it's a fight. And the optic of, of fighting and mixed martial arts is, um, you know, isn't always palatable for everybody. Um the first thing I always say is I'll guarantee that these guys want to do what they are doing and they are, you know, world-class at it. Um, but obviously, yeah, they, I mean, listen, one of the objectives of our sport is to give somebody a concussion. You're trying to knock them out, right? Um, so we can't hide away from the health and safety aspect of our sport um, within the without taking away from what the sport is. We obviously want to make it as safe as possible for our fighters. And when I say safety... That, enc- that encompasses everything from equipment and equipment design and development, which we're involved with, through to um, physical training and, and being prepared for the rigors of competition, through to rehabilitation and monitoring around health, well-being, um, brain health, etc. Um, you, you know, you, the, the implications on rules and regulatory matters, um, we, we have touch points into all of those things because at, at the forefront of what we're trying to do is within the boundaries of what the sport is, is make it as safe as possible for the fighters. We want to re, you know, retain the asset and the, the legacy of these people. We don't want to shorten their careers um, wherever possible. So, yeah, it, it means that we, we're not just you know, downstairs in the clinic treating people or, or working on the weight room on a, on a training session, but we're, we're engaging in research activities, looking at, um, you know, equipment design and impact forces and, um, you know, changing in, in canvas and impact characteristics of matting through to, you know, the, the influence of, of acute dehydration and, and, and weight reduction, acute weight reductions on cognition. And then obviously how that influences fight performance. Um, so we're touching on many different aspects where we're trying to really pursue placing the UFC as a very positive influence into this whole process rather than, hey, you guys are, are, are the people that put on these fights and um, you don't really care about what the fighters are doing. That is the antithesis of what we do here at the Performance Institute. And if you've got that spirit of data collection research, but it's you. The, the third point that you mentioned there was was changing the standards of combat sports. And does that does that relate across the whole combat sport domain uh, beyond just mixed martial arts? I hope so. And and, and you know, as, as a VP of performance, kind of driving this this ship here. But I know for our whole team, um, yeah, a- absolutely. At the end of the day, we we work for the UFC, which is mixed martial arts. So all of these different respective styles are are coming and filtering into our sport. So we truly feel that if we can have an impact on freestyle or Greco-Roman wrestling or kickboxing and Muay Thai or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, whatever it may be, if we can just elevate um, best practice, for want of a better term, globally in terms of setting up practice schedules, looking at training strategies, all these types of, you know, managing overload, 
if we do that on an individual level or have a touch point on individual combat sports, um, that, that will come back to us and pay it forwards. I've already had, you know, multiple calls and conversations with, with former employees, you know, GB Taekwondo or, you know, GB Boxing, other, you know, USA, you know, national governing bodies are always getting in touch with us and, and looking to seek out our insights. Um, but at the same time, a really interesting one for us is the cultural piece. You know, how, how do we influence, um, you know, someone doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu in a favela in Brazil? Um, and the lack of resources that they have. That's, that's going to be a world-class fighting population. But again, are we impacting them? How do we do it with someone in, in Beijing, China, that is a wushu fighter uh, and the way that the Chinese system develops their talent? How do we do it in, in Europe and, and you know some of the history in, in, in European styles uh, of combat? So we've, we're looking at this thing on a global scale where we're really trying to influence culture in all of the respective styles um that will feed into mixed martial arts but our desire is just to be the the leaders in 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 combat philosophy and combat sport development that's fascinating so you're working with the territorial traditions and culture that that might be infused to a modern contemporary version of of fighting yeah, and and it's that's been a real um, you know something I've had to get used to. You know, this is truly a global sport. Um, you know, there's, there's not a country in the world that doesn't have uh, the concept of fighting. You know, you, you can and, and and combat. So we have to embrace that. And you know, a Brazilian guy can walk through the door today, and we're going to have to approach his methods, his style, his philosophy, and how we support it very differently to someone that's coming from Poland or Germany, very differently to an Australian walking through the door. So we see everything. And uh, again, it comes back to that custom and bespoke nature of, of how we flex our styles and our systems. And again, it's it's on that personal level. It's it's on a an operational and a strategic technical level, but it's it's about deliverables and how we maximize those deliverables by engaging with the person, the team, the coach, the fighter, whatever it may be. So compact, really, I mean, it's as old as sport itself, really, isn't it? So as long as there's two people that are up for going against each other, with society, people, communities have been interested to see who the victor is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that that's the crux of it. I mean, Dana White has a, a famous quote that we have up on the wall here. It says, um, fighting is in our DNA. We get it and we like it. And I think, you know, that that's the thing about combat is it's um, it's very granular um, and people can resonate to it. It doesn't take a lot to figure out who's uh, who's winning a fight and, and who's who's losing a fight. And I think, you know, that can obviously polarize opinions. But what it means is that being so granular and so um, entrenched in our, you know, human DNA, people can make it, it's a very relatable. Um, and obviously, the entertainment factor and the excitement drives interest. And um, and I think we, we we try to breed on that, and we try to thrive off the back of it. Um, in in as much as um, you know, the, it, it's a it's a true global sport. You know, so as you say, since the dawn of time, people have been competing for food or you know competing for territory. Um, so it's probably you know fighting is probably the oldest sport, and I think that's uh, that's what makes it unique, and that's why it's got such a global appeal. Uh, and we're blessed to have you know that kind of impact our day to day here at the Performance Institute as we work with you know different cultures and and different athletes from. Geogra- ge- geographical locations around the world. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I, I liked boxing at Stokewood Road swimming pool back room <laughs> go, club until I got punched in the head. I loved it for a couple of evenings, but then when I got properly beaten up, I didn't enjoy it so much. Yeah. I mean, on, listen, on a day-to-day basis, I, I have the utmost respect for the athletes that I work with and what they do for a living. It's, um, it's a tough way to, to 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 earn a career but um it's also massively impressive and what we want to do like i say is is put our fighters in in the best position to succeed um to to be entertaining and and to be exciting for an audience so that they can earn a you know handsomely from it but also to to look after them and and look after their health and well-being um as the foundation of performance it's another philosophy you know that we try and instill here is that you know it comes down to health well-being and um you know metabolic um 
you know balance and uh, you know fueling and nutrition um it's not all about you know the bright light it's about how we support the fighters both before and after the fight and also how they live their day-to-day lives okay so what i'm hearing there potentially is a philosophy that ultimately fighting isn't going to go away it's been it's been around and it's been embedded into our thinking for eons and so if it's going to happen let's do it well let's support the athletes let's make the sport healthier and more vibrant as a consequence of your work yeah ab- absolutely i think it you're right it's it's not going away and, and we don't want it to go away we we you know like we we enjoy it and we enjoy combat and um you know there's a desire to look at you know getting mixed martial arts into the olympic games and it's the fastest growing sport in the world um so our motives are quite the opposite we want to continue to grow a global interest in in combat um if it's Joe Blow walking down the street and, you know, whether it's boxercise classes or jujitsu classes from a, you know, social responsibility perspective and the, the, the training and the physical development and the health and well-being that can go with some of the methods outside of, you know, competition, um, you know, we, we see it's, it's got its place in society. And as, as you say, that's certainly grounded in, uh, in the history of, of human, human nature. There seems to be, a massive potential there for the societal benefit of fighting, getting investment into boxing clubs that really talks to that pugilistic code that take the fight off the street and put it into a respectful environment where people go at each other and there's an outlet there, but ultimately it's it's minimising the harm that, that's done on the street. Is that something that the UFC wants to align with? Yeah, absolutely. One of our pillars of our company is we are all fighters. Um, and, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a, a family bereavement or ill health in the family and how people work through that, whether it's managing, you know, your career and stress and workload or whether it's, you know, in, in, in athleticism and, and how you go about competing, you know, on a day to day basis, we're, we're fighters and, and we're set, you know, set and wired that particular way. And that, that's a theme that runs throughout. I think, you know, I, I, obviously as a kid, I can recall, you know, the box, the, the kids that were sent to boxing clubs to try and challenge, channel the aggression and those types of things. And I think when you look at martial arts, there's a huge amount of discipline and respect that is inherently um, drilled into, a, you know, karate or taekwondo or jujitsu, you know, that there's a respect, um, uh, that, that is, there's inherent to that and that runs throughout our sport. So yes, whilst it's, uh, you know, at, at the professional level and, and the amateur level, competition is competition. Usually we can, um, do that on a, on a framework of, of mutual respect. Um, and it's not, you know, just a, a street fight. It's, it's very much around, um, legitimized rules and laws and policies. Um, and, and that's what we pride ourselves in. And, and the UFC and the UFC Performance Institute in particular continues to pursue how we can support athletes do that in the, in the safest and healthiest way to maximize their potential. So, Dunk, let me ask you then. We've been talking about principles, laws and mantras. Do you have a mantra yourself that keeps you on the straight and narrow? I mean, I've, I think I have lots. Um I always say I just do me, you know, and <laughs> that, that, it's not a great mantra, right? But I, 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 I've got certain upsides. I've got certain downsides that I know I need to work on and I, I can only ever be the best that I can be. But I, I strive to do that in a, in a very competitive fashion against myself on a daily basis. You know, I, I, I truly try to be better, um, and have that competitive mindset. Um, every single day but yeah I've got lots of mantras and and you know humble and hungry is is what I personally think I'm all about I've I've taken risks I've you know I've, I've put myself in awkward and uncomfortable positions in an effort to try and better myself better my career continue to promote what I do and what I believe in um but I try to be a good person I try to do it in a in a fashion where I build strong relationships with people um where I give mutual respect and um, I try to give my time and offer my uh, my empathy and, and, and my ear to people. So, uh, yeah, I never take things for granted. Um, and, you know, I've, but at the same time, I have a, a wicked competitive streak um, that runs through everything I do. Um, 
because that's that's the way I'm wired. I, I want to compete and I want to be better, but most of the time um, that's against myself rather than others. I absolutely love that. That's fantastic. So that's just got a real sense of ambition, authenticity, but it's also got that aspiration and the appreciation. So yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. Brilliant, Dunk. Well, thank you so much for spending the time sharing your thoughts and insights. I've learned loads about the world that you're now working in and your philosophies. And uh, I've really enjoyed the objective and the subjective. I've really enjoyed the, the focus on the data, but the people industry, your aspiration to be athlete focused and helping the athlete get better, but also helping the sport get better. So thank you so much for the conversation. No, I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, yeah, just good to connect with an old buddy and uh, shoot the breeze is, is, is always nice. That's the way I look at this. And, uh, yeah, if it helps some people kind of conceptualize things uh, along the way and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open to, to conversation and available on most media channels. So, uh, you know, please don't be scared to reach out. But, uh, yeah, on, on behalf of yourself, thank you, Steve. I, I appreciate the platform to chat. It's been great. Oh, brilliant. No, thank you, Dunk. If you'd like to follow Duncan, then you can do so on Twitter at Duncan French. And you can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. You can subscribe through our website, supportingchampions.co.uk for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please leave a review on iTunes. Now, Stephen Covey, the leadership author, once said, when you really listen to another person from their point of view and reflect back to them that understanding, it's like giving them emotional oxygen. So if you're thinking about what you're working on at the moment and you're looking for some emotional oxygen yourself, then maybe we can show up for you. Now, we've been supporting professionals and leaders to take the next step in their career through coaching and mentoring. And we've been helping people with things such as identifying strengths and managing weaknesses, career direction, and they're stuck in a rut, needing a sounding board and looking for the confidence to move forward.